If you would be turning in your Bibles to Isaiah 43, Isaiah 43, and today we're just going to do a little bit of review on what we covered before, but I wanted to highlight a couple of things as we got into this, Isaiah 43, and we'll be talking about the Holy One in Israel, which we talked about last week. One of the things I wanted to point out, I pointed out months ago when we did a review, is in our Bibles, there's kind of some key words that work really good as, as markers. I call them common markers. And when I see them, I kind of try and sit up and take note and say, okay, what is going on? And th- this is the list, behold, and that's usually where God's trying to get our attention, wants to look at something that he has done, uh, or the prophets do that. Another one is woe. When I see woe, I kind of, you know, want to hide under a rock somewhere because that's not a good thing when the Bible uses that word. Therefore, which I've heard many of pastors say, you need to understand what it's there for when you see the word therefore. Because is always a good one. Uh, If we think back to when we had children and everything, one of the most common questions, I think, is the question why. And as a parent, our, our reaction is oftentimes, because I said so. <laughs> and some people thought of that. Well, in God's word, when he says because, he gives us a reason. And so because is always going to explain things. In that day is another one. Because then I have to figure out what day are we talking about. Are we talking about when Christ first came? Or are we talking when he second came? Or are we talking about something else? And then repeated phrases. Anytime you see a repeated phrase, um, that's God's way of, of trying to get our attention and get us to focus on whatever that repeated phrase is. So just kind of keep those in mind. We'll see a few of those today. Last week we covered court being in session. And we mentioned, and this is in verses 8 through 13, where he called the blind with eyes to come forth and the deaf with ears to come forth. And I had mentioned that there were really two legitimate possibilities there. And Lynette brought up one of them, which was idols. And I wanted to read the passage, but that was the passage that somehow didn't make my notes. And I'm like, I know I typed that in. And so I want to read it to you. It's Psalms 115. 3 through 8, and it's a description of idols. And part of the reason why I want to read it to you is Isaiah keeps coming back to the alternative to trusting God is we're trusting idols. There's nothing in between. It's either trust God or trust idols. And our hearts as people, we have to be honest with ourselves we can make an idol so fast that it'll make people's heads spin. It just happens. And we have to actually think about, am I really trusting God or am I trusting idols? Listen to this description about idols, because Isaiah has been taking us back to them routinely. It says, But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. They have eyes. Excuse me. 
Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses they have, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that made them are likened to them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. And so I want us to realize that while I think the blind and deaf are talking about Israel, the idols fit that description really well too. And so, and I had this passage because I want us to realize that every idol that we may have, and there's idols of the heart, this passage focused on the molten idols, but the truth of the matter is the idols of the heart are far more prolific than all the molten and man-made ones, but they're all the same. They may have eyes, ears, nose, mouth, but they don't function. They're basically there, and they're a figment of man's imagination. Where does this start out? God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. And so we're going to see that as we look through this passage. We're going to pick up a little bit on what we had before. And so the blind and the deaf are those that are Israelites that God is calling to be witnesses for him. And one commentary had a a comment about these witnesses that I thought was very important for us and wanted to, to kind of revisit that. It says, so these servants are called to be witnesses. The servants are, are Israel. And if you remember in previous chapters, one of the things that God kept saying is, his servant is blind. And that's why I believe that passage references that, is because he's been focused on Israel being his servant. Now, can you think about the idea of having a blind servant? They're kind of limited. Okay, a deaf servant. Well, that'd be better than being blind, but if it's both, that's pretty rough. And that's how God is describing it. It says, these witnesses are servants. Those who know the truth of God because they've entered into bondage to him and in that bondage have learned his character. Those of us that have worked at a job, we got to know our boss. We got to know what he liked, what he didn't like, why he did certain things the way he did it. Well, that's kind of the same thing that God is saying here. Whether they totally believed whether they could see through the eyes of faith what God was doing, it didn't matter. They knew his character. They knew that he would be true to his word. And so that's what Isaiah's focus is here. And so these are God's chosen servants, but they're also witnesses. And they know God by what he's done in their life. They may not be able to explain it totally, but they are still witnesses that they can say, this is what God has done. And so God has mentioned this, and last week we covered the fact that they know and believe God. They understand who he is. They know there's no God before or after Jehovah, and they know he's the only God, and he's their only Savior. And Isaiah is going to pick up on that, 
this week when we get to verse 14. And then here's some of the actions that they witnessed. God declared they received God's promises. He saved them. And if you think back at the time Isaiah is writing this, Israel's history included the Exodus. So they knew that God had miraculously saved their forefathers. God showed them and revealed much of his plans, but some of it still was a mystery. And the other thing they knew is no one can deliver out of God's hands, and no one can reverse what God is doing. So no man, no idol, no pagan gods, no power on earth can prevent Jehovah from, from accomplishing his will or purpose for the church. That brings us to Isaiah 43, verse 14. And I just thought a quick review would kind of help us calibrate to what we're about to read. We actually read the first two verses of this, but we'll read down to verse 21 today. So Isaiah 43, verse 14 to 21. Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I have sent to Babylon and have brought down all their nobles and the Chaldeans whose cry is in the ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus saith the Lord, which maketh a way by the sea and a path in the mighty waters, which bringeth forth the chariots, chariot and the horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinct. They are quenched as tow. Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall ye not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and the rivers in the desert. The beast of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the de desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. Last week we covered who is Jehovah. And we talked about the fact that it's Israel's Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, that it's Israel's Holy One, Jehovah is, that he's the creator of Israel and that he's Israel's king. And toward the end of that, Greg Gibson brought up an interesting thing. He said that Jehovah's Witnesses came by his house, and I think he said they went right to this passage. I was kind of curious, when you look at those two verses, verses 14 and 15, do you see any evidence or anything that would highlight the fact that Jesus is deity? Okay, the Redeemer. And I think Linda's bringing up a very important aspect of it. Could God, the Father, redeem mankind without being human? Hmm. Everyone's thinking that's a trick question. It's not meant to be. <laughs> 
Well, if, Roxanne? God can do whatever he wants. Okay, the true answer is God can handle things however he wants. Now, at the same time that we know that that's true, he can do whatever he wants because he's created us, how has God chose and stated that he's going to redeem mankind? Because that's a different question. The first question, I think you all get it, you know, God can make whatever he wants and whatever rules he wants as far as things, but it's got to be consistent with his character. His character is moral excellence. So it's going to align with just holiness and moral excellence. So how did he say he was going to redeem mankind that would tell us that Israel's redeemer is probably not God the Father? What are his promises? Okay, that he would send a Messiah. I actually picked one earlier than that. Um, God the Father has a plan of salvation and redemption for Israel as well as all mankind. And the Redeemer statement in verse 14 to me suggests that it can't be God the Father because his plan requires redemption be accomplished through mankind. And I reference back to Genesis 3.15. And this is when Adam and Eve first sinned, and God was addressing that sin. And he said, And I will put enmity between the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That was the first hint of God's promise of a Redeemer, but that that Redeemer would come through mankind through the, off, the seed of Eve. And so I think God's promise would suggest to us that when it's talking about Israel's Redeemer, God didn't pick a way where he superseded mankind. He picked a way where it involved mankind, which is kind of amazing when you think about it. When you consider how frail we as people are, and how fickle we can be, God chose still to bring his son, his only begotten son, into this world and work through the genealogies of his chosen people to give us a savior, a redeemer. And so he's the redeemer. Now the Holy One of Israel, does that speak to Jesus? Well, I think we would say yes because of the fact that it's talked about Israel's Redeemer. But if it was by itself, the Holy One of Israel, one would say, well, God the Father fills that bill too. He is the Holy One of Israel. Um, he's Israel's Holy One. They said that they worshipped one true God, which was Yahweh or Jehovah. So both of those statements... And even the next one, the creator of Israel, one would say, well, that could very easily be considered God the Father and not Jesus. But when you get to Israel's king, it may change. Linda? He says, for your sake I will send to Babylon 
them all down as fugitives. And in my study book, it referred to Cyrus. Okay, Cyrus is mentioned previously. The main focus of this passage is, in my opinion, Jehovah. Not man, but Jehovah. But in considering Jehovah, we believe in a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when you look at these things, and especially when you look at the last one about there being a king, Cyrus isn't going to be Israel's king. He's going to be the king of Persia, and he's going to help. And he is mentioned by name a little bit later in a couple of chapters from now. But if you look at this passage, the emphasis, and by the way, I find it hard sometimes to pull the emphasis out. There are so many details that are there that I'm scratching my head and I'm saying, okay, what is the main point here? The main point is that Israel is going to be saved by Jehovah. And Jehovah is their God. And part of the reason why I wanted to highlight this passage is because I believe you can't separate God the Father and Jesus Christ. They're deity. They're one God. They're the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is in there also. And trying to separate them is like trying to separate your body and soul. You can't do it. And so... As you look at this one, and, and Linda's pointed out the actions that are going to happen, but the person that's going to do it ultimately is Jehovah. It's emphasizing he is the one in control. He uses other people. And he definitely considers the nations and their rulers to be instruments that are to accomplish his will. Chaldeans, Chaldeans. So I looked that up, and they were Babylonians, and Nebuchadnezzar was actually a Chaldean, and God used Nebuchadnezzar to... Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, we haven't quite got to the actions yet, because with what Greg mentioned last week, I wanted to highlight the fact, when you talk with the Jehovah's Witness... There's a couple of pieces of evidence here that says Jesus has to be deity. Because it says um, in verse 15, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. What promise did God make that would say that the King has to be our Lord Jesus Christ and not God the Father? Y'all are quiet today, Roxanne. So, Creator stuck out to me because it says that um, Jesus was there in the beginning as part of the creative work of God. Yeah, in fact, what Roxanne brings out about Jesus being there in the beginning, if you read Colossians, it talks about that Jesus spoke the word and brought things into existence. So, God the Father... And Jesus worked in concert together, but he was there at the very beginning. But the thing that I'm focused on is, who is Israel's king? 
Well, it says here Jehovah is, but it's also comes from the line of David. God made a promise to David. Uh, I'll read it to you in 2 Samuel 7, 16. God's promise to David says, And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. So when you look at this passage on the surface, it's easy to say, oh, it's just God. Not that I would say it that flippantly, but basically the idea is it's Jehovah, Yahweh. But Jesus is the manifestation of God to us and to Israel. And so he's going to fulfill this promise. And it highlights the fact that Jehovah, to fit all the descriptions, must be Jesus and that he must be 100% God and 100% man. There are two passages or two things in this passage that to me highlighted his humanity. And one was the Redeemer, because you find throughout Scripture the kinsman Redeemer. And the second one is, Israel's looking for a human king. They aren't looking for God the Father as king. They're looking for God to fulfill his promise to David that there will be a kingdom after David in genealogy. Lynette? It reminds me of when Jesus was crucified and they put the sign above it said king of the Jews and the Jews said take that down he's not our king yeah. and Pilate said what I've written what I've written I've written so it stands yeah Lynette brings up the fact that the crucifixion they put behold king of the Jews and Pilate said I've written what I've written and I believe that was God inspired I think God put that on his heart and his mind to do that and so Greg brought up a, a good point that I thought was worthy of us delving in a little bit more, which is the fact that Jehovah's Witnesses deny the deity of Christ. This passage interweaves it so much that I don't see how you can avoid coming to the conclusion that Jehovah is not just God the Father, but it's God the Son, because the only one that is qualified to be the Redeemer and Israel's king has to be 100% mankind also. And so that's why we believe as a church and as a group that Jehovah is not only God the Father, but God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, and that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. And so this is just two verses out of a passage that tend to highlight that. Now, yes, you can look at Holy One of Israel and Creator, and you can say, well, that's God the Father. Well, I think it's also God the Son. But like we said, you can't separate the two. It just doesn't happen. So that brings us to what has God done for Israel? And so it mentioned he sent Israel to Babylon for their own sakes. If you look in verse 14, it says, For your sake I have sent to Babylon. And so the highlight or the the thing that's being focused on there is God's looking out for Israel. 
and he has claimed to be for them their redeemer, their king, and he says, I'm sending you to Babylon for your own sake. Now, most of us, if we were in the Jews' shoes, would look at that and say, this is not a pleasure trip or a cruise. We are being taken as prisoners, but that's how he's protecting them, is by sending them. Yes, ma'am. When I was studying the Chaldeans, I also found out how intelligent they were. Oh, yeah. They were very intelligent, and I've made a note of it. They are the ones that gave us our, what is it, the time? Our time? The way we There's a lot of things they did. Yeah. They were really highly intelligent yeah. in science. In fact, uh, if you read the book of Daniel... What you find is the Chaldeans, their intent when they brought Daniel and the other Hebrew prisoners to Babylon was that these Jewish people are going to attend Babylon University. Babylon University is going to school them in all the pagan religions and ideology that, ba that Babylon held. And the Chaldeans had you know their group that was considered to be the wise men and that's who King Nebuchadnezzar would call when he didn't understand a dream or when he wanted certain types of information and God took Daniel and turned them upside down on their heads because Daniel just exceeded their wisdom and knowledge you know just tremendously now, the Chaldeans, God says, he's going to bring them down. That's basically talking about the fact, and Linda mentioned the word fugitives. Here they are taking Israel as fugitives, but eventually when God's done, they're going to be conquered, and they're going to be the fugitives. And in fact, it mentions they're going to be brought down all their nobles, and the Chaldeans, whose cry is in their ships... What that's highlighting is, is they would take ships up the Euphrates River to wage war. And they would basically take pride that we got all these ships and we're able to come and defeat any, any army. And they're going to be brought down. The other thing that we see in this passage is God's going to make a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. Does that cause you to have any thoughts of how God is dealing with the Jewish people in, in this passage? He's going to make a way in the sea and a path in mighty waters. Okay, the Red Sea. What happened in the Red Sea? Okay, he parted the waters. He made the path. And so here, Isaiah is referencing a future event and a past event. The chariot and horse are brought down. Well, the Egyptians had lots of chariots and horses, and God put it on, their, on Pharaoh's heart that he was so enraged that he sent them into the Red Sea on the dry land that the Israelites just crossed, and God closed up the waters. And he basically took care of Israel, but also destroyed the Egyptians. 
Now, if you're like me, sometimes I struggle with when things happened. So I figured I'd put a timeline up here, and it might be a little small to read. But you see the, the green bar that says Isaiah on it? There's an arrow there to help us, okay? This chart shows when Isaiah lived and when he was writing the book of Isaiah. Manasseh was an evil king, and based on some of the commentaries and things that I've read, Manasseh is believed to have had Isaiah killed. So we know when Isaiah existed, when he wrote things, and this arrow shows when the Babylonians were defeated, which is some of what Isaiah is writing about here. So this is a future event that Isaiah is writing about. Now, the Exodus happened hundreds of years before, so Isaiah is writing both about what happened as well as what is going to happen. Uh, he's seeing through the eyes of faith both future and past. Now, the verb tenses, if you go through this, which is something that I know my wife likes to do, and I I try to do it to kind of get a, an idea of when things are. They get pretty confusing in this. There's past, present, and future tense verbs and all of this. But the main focus is on Jehovah. Jehovah has the power to do great and mighty things. It doesn't matter to the prophet when they happened. In fact, I think many times as he is seeing Messiah... He is blending things about the first coming with the second coming because he's not really concerned chronologically. He's just trying to paint a picture for us of what Messiah is going to do, what Messiah can accomplish. And so here, if you go through this, you'll see things where it says shall, which would be more future. Um, but then it says they are extinct, they are quenched as tow. That's basically quenched like a, a um, wick on a, on a lamp. And so you get all of those blended in. But what is consistent is he's focused on Jehovah. Jehovah and his actions. Isaiah mentioned lots of details, but the main point is the fact that he's going to be the one to save Israel. So that brings us to verse 18. And I put up two different translations for you. And so he's been going through and he's been talking about what Jehovah's going to do. And then he says, Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. The NASV says, do not call to mind the former things or consider the things of the past. Why is he saying that? What does this mean? What happened in the past is insignificant now. Okay. What happened in the past is insignificant now. Because just before that, he talks about what happened with the rich. Say that one more time. Right. Right. And then he says, next, I'm going to do something else. That's right. So it's a transition. 
Okay, it's definitely a transition, and Linda's also right. What he did before was pretty significant to the Israelites. I mean, you think about it. They came through the Red Sea. They were able to uh, be freed from bondage in Egypt. It wasn't just your casual, oh, walk across the bridge across the Red Sea. I mean, this was a pretty significant thing. I'm sure that they look back on that. But what Isaiah is highlighting is compared to what's going to happen, it's insignificant. It's exactly what Linda was saying. What you see before, what you might think about that God has already done, doesn't hold a candle to what he's going to do. And so this is a transition verse that gets us into... The new thing, notice in verse 19, he says, Behold, there's that marker that I mentioned, Behold, I will do a new thing, now it shall spring forth, shall ye not know it? And so Isaiah is highlighting to them what God did before. Uh, That's small potatoes, that's not a big deal. What he's about to do, behold, what he's going to do is so much greater than what he did before. And so he's basically saying, yeah, God did glorious and amazing things to save Israel, but it's limiting how they view God going forward. And if you think about when Jesus came, part of the reason they rejected him was they didn't me- he didn't measure up to what they thought God was going to provide, which was political freedom and a political ruler, a king. And so they rejected him. And so God's future plan really involves salvation and redemption for Israel and mankind. And that is a far more amazing feat than the physical that they were looking at. They were looking at his power, and they weren't looking at what God was doing for them spiritually and how much more important that was. So this new thing, God's going to make a way in the wilderness. When you consider today what Israel has been through since the crucifixion, Um, God has made a way to preserve his people. None of the commentaries point to a specific event on this way in the wilderness, but he says he's going to make a way for them. He's going to redeem them. He's going to protect them. He's going to preserve them. He's going to give water in the wilderness for his chosen people. And again, it doesn't reference a specific thing, but the idea is is that through everything that's going to happen to Israel, God is going to preserve their life and take care of them. And so there's always a remnant of the Jewish people that survive all of the horrors that have happened since the crucifixion. And then God basically says there's a purpose for this people. 
And that's at the end of the chapter, or not the chapter, the end of the passage we read, verse 21. This people have I formed for myself. And so God's chosen people, he's molding and making them to be the people that are for himself. And the purpose of that is to show forth his praise. If you think about it, there's a lot of parallels to the church. But the church didn't get these promises. Israel did. But the church, in many ways, is another servant of God. It's not the same. But it's Jew and Gentile-like. They're a chosen people. We're called. We're called the elect. And God is working in our hearts and lives to conform us to the image of his Son... And if you think about that, we're supposed to show forth his praise. Israel was supposed to. Israel is right now in, in what I've heard described as time out for the Jews. And that's because we're in a dispensation. By the way, if you missed Pastor Aaron's uh, explanation on dispensation Sunday night, I think you missed a real blessing but he, he basically highlighted the fact that throughout time, God has dealt with mankind with a certain economy or a certain manner of dealing. And he described seven different time periods. And so we're in the time period that most call the church age or the church dispensation. And we're supposed to show God's praise. We're supposed to point people to Jesus Israel was supposed to point them to Jehovah. And when we look at Israel, we can easily say, man, they blew it. And then we look in the mirror and see the church, because we are the church, and we can say, wow, we're really blowing it. We're doing the same thing they did. We're supposed to show forth his praise. Which brings us to the last verses of the chapter, 22 to 28. So here he's had a focus on Jehovah, what Jehovah would do, that what was going to happen in the future was going to be even more amazing than what he's done in the past. And he's trying to get their attention to not limit God. And he says, you're supposed to show God's praise. And then he says, but... Verse 22, But thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob, but thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. Thou hast not brought me the small cattle of thy burnt offerings, neither hast thou honored me with thy sacrifices. I have not caused thee to serve with an offering, nor wearied thee with incense. Thou hast brought me no sweet cane with money. Thou hast... Neither hast thou filled me with the fat of thy sacrifices, but thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Thy first father hath sinned, and thy teachers have transgressed against me. 
Therefore, I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary and have given Jacob to curse, to the curse, and Israel to reproaches. So in verse 22, Isaiah switches from looking at Jehovah to looking at Israel. And he immediately describes their sin. Now, this little short section of six verses, if I were to try and put a title on it, I think it would be Salvation by Grace, Not of Works. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is some verses that I think many of us are very familiar with. It says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This passage is a perfect example of that. He starts out and he describes Israel's sins. What are Israel's sins that he describes here? And we may not get past describing these. <laughs> Linda? God wants them to believe in just one God, not their idols. This one thing that I got out of it. And uh, he is warning them. He even makes new promises to them, trying to get them to do this. And they're not listening. So they are coming to the end of this, and he's getting ready to punish him. Okay, so Linda has seen how idols versus the one true God have been interwoven into the, the passages, and he's getting to the point where he's going to let their sins kind of come home to roost, where they reap what they sow. But that doesn't mean all is lost for them because he talks about blotting out their sins or blotting out their transgressions and remembering their sins no more. But before he does, what are the sins? What, what are they doing that is so offensive to God? Okay, I can only hear one at a time. I think Mickey said something. It's what they're not doing. They're not doing the sacrifices or the... Okay, so one of the things they're not doing is they aren't calling on God. You think about it. When we have troubles in our life, where's the first place we go? Hopefully it's to God. But sometimes it may not be. Um, yes, I am grateful that God gave us doctors. But who do I trust more, doctors or God? God wins. No contest. The doctors are doing their best with what they know. And I think God has given them some knowledge and skill. But the ultimate is trusting God. And so they haven't called on him. What else has Jacob not done? And by the way, these are all in those passages. Okay, kind of in line with what Linda's saying, Israel has been weary of God. And so instead of going to God, they're going to idols. They're basically saying, well, I'm kind of tired of this, so I'm going to go try out some idols and see what happens. Yes, ma'am. It's interesting because he highlights you have to go many sacrifices. 
says, he never bought me this. You haven't done this for me. It's like he's emphasizing you didn't do it for me. You did it for us. Yep. You didn't give me so their burnt offerings weren't even complete. They didn't even bring all the things they were supposed to. And so here they are supposedly worshiping God and they turn to idols and they take the idols far more. Now, in pagan worship, what was the purpose of bringing offerings to idols? Why did they do it? Okay, if you think of man's logic, man says, oh, I've got this God with a little g, and I want to appease his anger, or I want him to do something for me. And so their worship through these offerings to the idols was really a manipulative worship. It was an idea of if I get the gods happy with me by bringing them these offerings, then they'll do what I want. And so a lot of our idols, if you want to find the idols in your heart, think about what you desire the most and how much our rationalization and manipulation is going on um, because we don't like to admit we're worshiping idols, but that's what we do when we pursue our own will. And so they weren't doing that. Their sacrifices didn't even honor God. Um, If you remember back a few chapters in Isaiah, it says, They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And that's a passage that Jesus quoted both in Matthew and in Mark. And the idea was they'll go through all this ritual, but in reality... Did they really love God with their heart? That's what they're supposed to be doing. That's what we're supposed to be doing. But yet we all find it so hard. Our heart, like the hymn writer puts it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's what our heart does. And so we're seeing in them some of the same things that really exist in us. Continuing, he didn't force them. You'll find... And if you you look at this on your own, you'll find the word weary and the word serve are mentioned multiple times in just these six verses, about two or three times each. And so God says, and this is the irony of it, he says to Israel, he says, I didn't try to make you weary in bringing an offering or serving me with an offering and weary with the incense. I didn't force that. He could have. There was nothing God couldn't do, but he invited them to come into communion and fellowship with him with these things, and they wouldn't do it. And at the same time, they withheld sacrifices. They didn't do it. But they made God have to serve with them and their sins. So here they are, sinning, which is a reproach to a holy God. And what do they do? They force him into a position where that's what he has to do. And then the last thing we'll cover today, God was wearied with their iniquities. So their sins and iniquities were a burden to God, 
when he didn't burden them. And so we get things backwards. We have a God that has created us, that loves us, that's redeemed us. Everything we saw him describe about Israel is also true for you and I as the church. And yet we weary him with how quickly we will be sinful. And yet he doesn't weary us. In fact, when Jesus came, he was the sacrifice once for all. And he says to us, Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He offers us rest, and what do we do? We weary him with our sinfulness, just like Israel did. Next week we'll finish the chapter, and uh, we saved the best for last. Unfortunately, we didn't get to it today. But the very next verse... And I'd, I'd appreciate if you'd spend some time looking at that verse and just considering how wonderful it is. It's verse 25, because what he promises for Israel there, he also does for you and I. Well, we're out of time. I hear people getting restless in the hallway. Thank you for staying with me. We'll close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your great love for us. And the fact that you gave the ultimate sacrifice in your dear son that you sent to be the sacrifice and redeemer for our sins. Father, as we come into this worship service, I pray that our hearts would not only reverence you, but we would exalt Jesus highly and honor him because of how great a salvation he purchased for us. We thank you for your word. And Father, we just pray you would cause it to, to stir our hearts to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.